Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Hey, Intimates. It's episode 78. That means it's our year-and-a-half episode. I have been faithfully publishing every week to you for a year and a half, yet somehow I'm still late to some of my appointments. Well, first off, thank you for listening. Thank you to you by participating and observing this art slash documentary series. I don't even know exactly what I'm, what I'm making, but I'm making a thing, and you're part of making that thing. So thank you for contributing to Intimate Interactions. Also, I've decided in that spirit to give out a lot more of my content for free. So what does that actually mean? It means I'm not holding so much stuff on the premium side of things, permanently. So Patreon's essentially going to turn into the occasional premium episode and predominantly a nine-month early release. Why nine months? Well, what ended up happening was I looked at the back catalog of episodes, published all of it for free weekly, and what ended up happening was all of the new episodes that I'm publishing on premium and then also chucking um, on the stack of free things well, it ends up being about nine months to get through the back catalog of premium episodes that haven't been published free yet. So the free podcast is getting a brand spanking new episode every week instead of biweekly. And the Patreon stuff is immediately going on that queue, which publishes about nine months later. So that's what's going to be happening. Okay, now some shout outs to my Patreons who got me here. First, my accountability supporters. You're the biggest rock stars. Special thanks to Martin, Justin, Julian, and Bianca, who have supported not just the podcast, but my accountability work as well, which honestly has been so generous and so helpful to getting me where I am today. Consulting with two large organizations from Vancouver, I'm potentially going to be writing an outline for an academic paper. It's really just incredible. Things have gone to places where I never thought they would go to. I'm recently presented at Reimagining Masculinities 2019. I presented at Stratagem 2019. I presented at West Coast Bound. It's been an amazing ride. In addition, I want to offer special thanks to Suze, Owen, Cam, Ashley, Anne, Joe, Kim, KJ, Tyler, and of course, all of my former Patreon supporters who are no longer supporting me, which is completely reasonable. 
there are so many reasons to be supportive and get access to awesome things. And I also completely understand what it is to be like, you know what? Three bucks a month is a lot or $1 a month is a lot. That's just the reality for so many of us today. Okay, let's start talking about the actual episode. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Jana Skorstengard. Jana is a master's candidate at the University of Ottawa in criminology, and we're going to discuss how we relate to crime and how we're sort of intimate with the criminal punishment system as citizens in Canada. It has the power to sort of come up in our lives and take everything we have if it chooses, and we have this really intense blind trust that it will be just and it will be fair. And even though we know it's not like that for lots of other people, we see news stories come up and we go, oh my goodness, that doesn't seem really fair. Or, wow, 25 years seems like a long period of time. But we often don't ask the corresponding questions like, how much does a person change in 25 years? Or maybe we just buy the assumptions that a person can't change and that 25 years isn't enough. In any case, it's important to ask the question, why do we assume we'll be treated fairly? Is it, is it maybe, like, is it weird for me to say it might just be white folks who assume they'll be treated fairly? Is it weird to say that they should or they shouldn't? Very interesting questions. Anyways, we have a good conversation. We don't answer more questions than we ask, but we do answer some. So good luck. Have fun. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with master's student Jana Skorstengard, who is a master's student at University of Ottawa, specifically in criminology, doing a thesis on arts programs for women on probation and parole. Um, I guess today the topic will be criminology and our relationships to it. How do we impact it and how does it impact us? And I can't think of a better guest than Yana. Welcome, Yana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's going to be a pleasure, I'm sure. It was last time and I, I look forward to our conversation. It was very fun last time. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. So do you want to get us started off with maybe a quick definition of what criminology is for folks who maybe aren't super familiar and just sort of kind of like define the landscape in which we're going to be having this conversation? Sure. Yeah. Um, so really broadly, criminology is the study of crime. Um, it can involve studying offenders, um, offending patterns. Um, you can look at victims. You look at communities. Um and the impact that crime has on communities. You can even go into things like geographic profiling. Um which mm-hmm. is, uh, ooh, how do I define this? Hmm. It's more to do with serial offending, but it's like um, an offender will offend close to their home, and then as they get more comfortable, they will branch out further and further. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, if you want to read, um, Dr. Kim Rosmo is um, probably the leading expert on that. He w- he worked on the Robert Picton case with the VP. Wow. Um, and he wrote his, uh, he wrote his, I believe his PhD on geographic profiling created this amazing program for it um, that one of my <clears throat> BA profs was like super into. So yeah, it can it can involve a lot of things. Um, I'm a critical criminologist, so I look at the impact of um, incarceration. Uh, we look at the impact of policing on communities, um, specifically on uh, marginalized communities, and the negative impact that it has mm-hmm. that we've seen in the media. Um, Mm -hmm. and we mostly just, uh, dunk on the system and want it to change. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's my thing. Um, 
because I like dunking on stuff. So that's <laughs> and as a friend who's known you for a long time, I just like it's such a good fit and it like in my opinion, and it's so great to see you sort of like grow into this person that's like, I am going to channel all of that sarcasm and vitriol for the betterment of society. And I'm gonna put it in a thesis and I'm gonna, you know, just rip on stuff. So that's fun. <laughs> Awesome. So other than a desire to rip on the system and be like, y'all are crazy. And this is, this is, this is balls. Why did we choose to do this? Um, why did you choose to get into criminology? Uh, well, in high school was the one thing I was good at. Mm -hmm. Um, I took one class with, I believe it was Mr. Tuck from DSS. Um, he taught like law and socials and stuff like that. Um, and I took okay. it because I was like, this might be fun. And he was like, you're actually really good at this and you should probably go to university for it. And I went, okay. And I had <laughs> no direction in my life. <laughs> and uh, sure, sure. his entire class was studying serial killers. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. This is so interesting. Um, mm -hmm. got a big kind of macabre streak. And I think that's where a lot of people who have an interest in true crime and criminology, that's where we start. Um, mm -hmm. and then once you get into sort of higher ed, they slowly, at least Quantlin sl slowly rolled out like, Hey, the system sucks. And we're going to teach you how it <sighs> sucks. And you're just like, Oh yeah, I'm too far. I'm way too far in to quit now. Like I just, I'm here to hide. <laughs> and just, uh, um, so that, that's why I got involved. And then, um, I left for a while to go to theater school. And I became an actor um, because I didn't want to go back to, I didn't want to do academia anymore. And then I came back originally because I wanted to be a probation officer. I wanted to help people. Um, mm -hmm. And I really wanted to make, make change in, in communities, um, especially ones that I saw that were really deeply affected by, by crime and people mm. who were deeply affected by, by poverty, um, by drug use, and things like that. And I really wanted to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And then I learned that it's really difficult to do that. And it's really depressing. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but like shout out to the people who do that every single day and, and they do make a difference. Um, I, instead I went into research um, specifically on women who offend um, because that's a big, a big passion of mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah exciting yeah so wonderful well why don't we talk a little bit about that so you're studying or are passionate about um women who offend how to help them programming motivations let's start with motivations why do you think and, and i guess that's an unfair question because it's so broad mm. um but would you like to talk about some reasons why you think women might offend um from what <sighs> what I've read, it's like, they don't offend as frequently as men. Um, mm -hmm. but it's like a lot of the stuff that I've seen, they get, women get dinged for things like, um, soliciting sex. Um, women get dinged for things, right. uh, like even, even say reporting a sexual assault and say, you know, there's <clears throat> something that comes out that says, oh, and you know, the guy, the guy says it's a false report and whatever. A woman can get arrested for that, even if it happened. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. I've read a couple of cases where that has, that has happened, or at least they've, um, 
they've tried to charge her. I don't know if you saw, um, there's a Netflix special called Unbelievable. Uh, okay. It was about a woman who was attacked by a, a serial sex offender. Um, she went to the police um, and they did nothing. All they did was re-traumatize right. her. And then they decided that she was lying because she couldn't get mm-hmm. her story straight. Under duress, <clears throat> they made her confess, mm-hmm. like confess in air quotes, that she was lying. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, they charged her with uh, making a false accusation. Uh, wow. She was telling the truth. This person was a serial offender. He went on to commit several more sexual assaults. Um, and then he was caught by two female detectives. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I see a lot of things like it's mostly, mostly what I see is, is women being arrested for sex work, especially survival sex work. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of complex reasons for women's criminality that are really kind of still super ignored, um, by criminals Mm -hmm. in general. And that's where feminist theory comes in and says, you know, we need more research because we don't have, we don't have nearly as much research as we do on men. Uh, right. Yeah. So thinking about that, I'm kind of curious about gender differences. And if you can think of any times in your life where you were motivated to offend or where you felt like, wow, I can totally see how this type of situation could lead someone to offend. Um, I think in my life, um, definitely being, uh, definitely surviving an abusive relationship. Um, sure. I could see how, like we, I don't know you've heard about like uh, battered women syndrome or battered spouse syndrome. Um, I have not. It's, uh, it's when women who are abused, um, specifically will, uh, will take out, so to speak, or murder, um, the spouse who has been tormenting them for so long um oh wow very directed um and once that once that target is gone um they don't offend anymore because that's it it was it was just a one-time thing they needed to get out they saw no other way to get out um so i think that's another kind of complex issue especially with women Mm -hmm. um is is abuse and how women sometimes really desperately decide to get out of situations um, which is yeah. I, why I think that far more social support is needed. Um, I think, yeah, for me, that was a big one. When I was in an abusive relationship, I was like, wow, I can definitely see how this is, this is definitely a thing. Because um, mm. I'd only heard about it on the news and in textbooks and things like that. But yeah, once I was in it, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, I get it. Yeah, it's kind of incomprehensible, yeah. I think, until someone's actually been in an abusive relationship. And even then, you can only really speak from your own experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the lens that you sort of look at that abuse happening in and the way it sort of lands for you. And obviously, for me, as a, socialized as a boy, um, growing up and, and being more masculine presenting, obviously, my experiences in abusive relationships will be quite different from yours. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what the disparate sort of feminist schools of thought would have to say about motivations on why women offend? Because I know you did do some writing on that in your thesis. I did. Yeah. Um, so let me see. I'm just scrolling through my thesis because again, <laughs> I, I know I wrote this. 
Um, but it was <laughs> it was a while ago, and it was on a lot of caffeine. Um, <laughs> Probably and, at like two in the morning. Yeah, or all night. Um, sure. Because academia, you got to work. Um, let me see. So a lot of well, actually, a lot of what the, the like the scholars that I that I read for my thesis, um, they said that like women are either in criminology, women are either seen as victims or they are mm -hmm. quotes. And this is this just like destroyed my soul to read. Um, I can't remember which male criminologist said this, but it was definitely one of them. Um, old white male criminologists, I should say. Um, called mm -hmm. them sad pathological offenders. Oof. Um, yeah. Yeah. And their offending is is like it's it's demonized and it's seen as cruel and monstrous. And I was like, mm. what about, what about men? <laughs> like you look at somebody like Ted Bundy, like, come on. Mm -hmm. Let's let's compare and contrast. Um Right. Like to call somebody who murders like one person sad pathological and yeah. monstrous when you have serial killers there yeah. and even when you compare serial killers a lot of the time you're comparing like and i don't want to be too graphic yeah, for listeners comparing. but someone who literally like flayed and tortured children yeah. versus someone who poisoned poisoned a whole bunch of yeah. people you're, you're, and like the monstrous one is clearly the woman who poisoned a bunch of people yeah. not the dude that like abducted raped children and then mutilated their bodies while they were still alive exactly and you're you're comparing you're comparing fringe cases to women who often want to get out of really horrific situations uh um, sure like and we and like we we really we punish women more severely um for really simple things even even for sex work um mm -hmm. and we punish women for things like you know it's like like literally like the the old ethical question like stealing food to to feed your family that's a real thing that people do that's a real thing that women do or women who offend yeah um like that they get busted for and go to jail for yeah, like literally go to jail for stealing food from a grocery store. That's that's nuts to me, but I mean, I guess that that makes sense to me. Theft seems like the most rehabilitatable of offenses. Yeah, especially when you're talking about folks that are like kleptomaniacs or that are stealing with like a really obvious motivation like that. Exactly. Yeah. Not that I have any experience in this. This is your field, not mine. But I'm just saying. <laughs> Um, yeah, like that, that's just some, that's just some of the feminist theory that I've read. There are so many great women who are writing about crime and right. women who offend. Um, I can't list all of them. Um, but yeah, they are, they are really incredible. Um, I can send you some links if you want. Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm some of the big honestly, you can just email me like a sheet of resources and I'll just post them all with a podcast so yeah. folks can access more of the, yeah, for sure. more of the literature. Um, Great. So talking, sorry, did you have something? No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, so talking about um, rehabilitation, because I started talking about it when we, when I randomly talked about kleptomaniacs, because we were talking about um, theft, that kind of brings us nicely into this idea of programming, like the idea of having programs to sort of further the goals of, of corrections, which isn't just incarceration, like detaining people or punishing them, but rather correcting the behavior, like some form of rehabilitation or healing for the underlying causes um, that led to the motivation to commit crime. So 
you mentioned that uh, that all in, in the preamble sort of to this podcast, we were we were chatting and Yana mentioned the total for all of Canada um, when she requested programming from the was it Correction Services Canada? Yeah. That it was 23 pages on programming, including only two pages for Indigenous women. <laughs> Why is there such a lack of programming for women incarcerated in Canada? Oh, I wish I had a good answer. Um, my, my the the answer that I can come to from looking at those pages and doing this work for the past like two or three years of my life is that um, there's they don't care enough. Um, mm -hmm. Women's incarceration is going up. Um, indigenous women's incarceration is going up. Um, which theoretically should mean that you should have more programming. Um, right. Don't. And that I was specifically looking at arts programming. So I wasn't looking at um, anger management, education, GEDs, things like that. Um, okay. I was specifically looking at arts because I, I feel like you tell CSC like, oh, we need more arts prog programming. And they just go, <laughs> okay, like whatever, like get out of here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I, sit down, hippie, like nobody cares. Um, they're like, we can, right. you know, we can give them some, some crayons and like a sheet of paper and they can color on it. Does that work? And you're like, no, like it's more in depth and complicated. And they're like, yeah, whatever. We got this. Don't worry about it. And then they just kind of shove you out the door. Um, so I, I wasn't right. programming as a whole, but like arts programming compared to the research that I saw on men, which I collected data from the U S uh, Canada. Um, where else did I collect from United kingdom? And New Zealand, mm -hmm. um, okay. all the literature around arts programming was on men. Um, wow. Yeah. So the answer is, I don't know why there's not enough programming for women, um, but there absolutely freaking should be. Um, well, and especially with some of the things you were mentioning about outcomes and the connection between arts and personal self like self-expression not to mention like finding one's own voice and being able to have alternative ways of communicating other than violence alternative ways of getting of de-escalating situations and avoiding conflict yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there it sounds like there's a lot of value in arts programming oh absolutely and it's it's uh it's really great for um offenders who don't have necessarily the literacy skills to get into a ged programming or get into a GED program, sorry. Um, mm. Arts arts can really, it can, it can really help. Um, I was looking at a study where it was, it was men who were involved in the theater programming or who were involved in the theater program mm -hmm. in New York. And they were, um, mm -hmm. the participants who went through the program were more likely to get a GED, a bachelor's or a master's degree. Wow. Through this theater program because it, they have to, they have to read a script. They have to deconstruct a script like it's an English class and a theater class and a class on communication, trust, all these things just rolled into one program. Like you're literally learning emotional intelligence that's vital for avoiding offending. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, and you're, it's an education program as well. So why wouldn't you roll all those things into one? It saves you more money. Yeah. Um, in the long run. And it's more fun for the, it's more fun for the people who are in prison. You know, totally. It's... Do, sit in the classroom or like, or like paint and sculpt and things like that. Like, think about it. Yeah. 
Totally. And especially for people that may not be in the best mental wellness headspace. Like if you have to force yourself to do something, it's a lot harder to be like, I'm going to sit and concentrate on abstract ideas and read words than to say like, yeah, you're really agitated and you can channel that into doing things like working with your hands, like sculpting or acting. Like it's, it's such a good um, avenue to sort of release and express feelings that isn't as exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, I mean, there's, there's a few studies that have said that um, arts programming specifically lowers rates of depression in people who are incarcerated. I would believe that. Yeah. And that combined with their medication. I mean, that's fantastic. I mean, if they get medication, the mental health right. arena and CSC is <clears throat> another thing that I don't even know if I can get into because I don't have the expertise on it, but it's not a good situation. <laughs> Um, that's fair. Yeah. I, I recently went on Vortioxetine. The brand name is Trintilix. It's a serotonin modulator. So I'm medicated now. And honestly, it has been great for me, like just great. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, everyone should have access to, um, any kind of psychiatric drug that they need <clears throat> proper mental health care, and then an avenue to express that. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't care if you're in jail or not. Everyone should, it's, it's their, it's human rights. And like, for me, creative expression, self-expression is part of being human. Um, and I don't, absolutely, I don't think we should deny anybody that. So. Yeah. It very much comes back to what we think fundamental human rights are and more Almost more importantly than fundamental human rights, I don't think we should be giving people only the bare minimum of what we believe they deserve, because that word deserve is so charged with judgment. I think it is much better to look at things from the context of what is the society we want to live in? Yeah. If I were destitute on the street because my family had disowned me and I were and I had no skills and I was a 15 year old, um, you know, like trans individual or just queer individual, which, you know, if I were if I knew I was queer sooner and had come out sooner and had been, you know, disowned by my family and was on the street, where do you want those individuals to end up? What would be the best case scenario outcome? And is it really that expensive? Yeah, it's, it's not. Um, yeah. TLDR, it's not that expensive to support people very, very well, even, even to some minimum standard of living. It's really not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, community corrections is a cheaper alternative. It diverts people away from the justice system. Um, it allows them to give back to their communities. Um, restorative justice is part of that, which allows the victim and the offender to meet face to face. Um, mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of great things that can happen um, as like an alternative to prison. So, yeah, definitely. I'm uh, I'm currently going to be teaching uh, my Voices Consent Framework at Reimagine Masculinities 2019, mm -hmm. just coming up in just a couple of weeks. I'm prepared for that one, but I'm still working on my workshop because I'm going to be teaching an intensive the very next day on transformative justice and the different ways community processes go off the rails. And yeah, it's going to involve some like gamification where. I'm going to have scenarios for folks to do and I'm going to break them into working groups and have them run through um, like community justice scenarios in different positions. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to have prompts of like new information that has sort of come up. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of ways for, I mean, restorative justice and community justice is they're, they're such great alternatives, but when you put them into the wrong hands, 
Um, mm. I think things can really go sideways and then nobody gets the healing that they need. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely, yeah, there's, there's a cultural context that things arise in and it's easy to miss that most restorative justice that we do in Canada is derived from either indigenous cultures Mm -hmm. or in some way from black cultures or other POC cultures. But typically the two organizations I see doing lots of, uh, work in this area are going to be organizations that are either indigenous or because I almost don't want to call them organizations because we're literally talking about communities at this point. Yeah. 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 And then I'm, I'm, I'm losing the name of the um, radical feminists of color organization in the U S that does really good work. I'm thinking of like, uh, Oh, um, Mariama Kaba and, uh, Oh, it's going to bug me now. I will have to include it with the notes. Yeah. I can't remember either. Cool. I have written that down. I will have to add that to resources. So yeah, um, basically when you take it outside of that context of like, it works very well in these communities and you try and just put it into mainstream for lack of any better term, white or European descended um, systems, you lose all of the things that empower transformative justice to function. Exactly. It's like, there's, there's just, and I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, um, but yeah, there's, there's so much that gets lost when you take something out of its indigenous culture and move it into a different culture. And you really have to plan for that Mm -hmm. and figure out how you're going to replace the things you lose when you go across culture and honestly acknowledge and cite and give credit where credit is due all the things that, are so easy to do and so easy to not do. Yeah, I was. It's really. I was reading this article. I'm doing a presentation on restorative justice um, for my mm. taking a class called. Um, oh, what is it called? I just call it 6340, but it has a name. Um, <laughs> like it's theories of intervention in criminology. Um, right. So it's a psych-based course. Okay. students, and I'm doing a presentation on restorative justice, and the article that I'm reading right now um, talks about um, peacemaking circles or sentencing circles, mm. sentencing circles in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a specific indigenous uh, cultural process um, of restorative justice. And when I was reading, I was like, why is there only like two acknowledgements that this came from indigenous peoples? Right. Um, so I, I have a, when I was reading, I was like, there should be a lot more acknowledgement of where this came from um, and where these restorative justice processes came from. Um, Cause there were a few mm-hmm. that were from uh, the Maori people in New Zealand. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then there, um, there are some from, from Canada as well and the U S um, but no specific nation was mentioned. It was just uh, indigenous or Aboriginal. Um, which was mentioned very briefly. <laughs> so I have right. issues with this article about, um, like you said, giving credit <clears throat> where credit is due. Um, because... it's, it's honestly really not difficult to do either. Like it's like citing is not something that's alien to most um, academics. We get, we get shit for it all the time. <laughs> Except when you're talking about POCs or indigenous folks. <laughs> exactly. So long as you're, so if you're not citing people who aren't white, no one will really notice it seems it's like frustrating 
it's so it's so gross i just yeah and I, i'm trying to collect um more and more authors who are poc who are indigenous who are queer who are feminine mm. um i'm just trying to leave the white dude behind because i'm so tired yeah. of that <laughs> just yeah it's it's honestly it's such a lens thing it's like the things said by folks who might be white and folks who might be dudes like those things can have value okay. but when you're trying to affect change in marginal communities you don't want someone who's not an expert and the fact of the matter is it's very hard for a white man who has never studied what it is like not to be a man mm -hmm. to be an expert of not being a man it is very hard for someone who's white who's never studied what it is not to be white to be an expert on not being white so it's not even that you know we need to quote unquote kick all the old white dudes to the curb it's more just an issue of like do these people have the expertise to even be advising and the answer that seems to be coming back invariably is not in areas other than white dudes yes yeah absolutely they have expertise in their own lived experience and they seem to be completely blind to the experience of others and that doesn't go for all white dudes but a lot of the white dudes i've read a lot of them yeah yeah yep i mean like i've seen i've seen like uh, classes on uh, dealing with the like policing and marginalized uh, communities being taught by white men mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. taught by a person of color mm -hmm. like for real yeah um, but no no it's taught by white dude almost all the time so I just yeah it, it kind of blows my mind that 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 would be the case that we could get to 2020 without hindsight as it were yeah and so speaking of so unless it, it, you're welcome to make closing comments um would, do you have something before i move on i was just gonna say for me all of my my best professors that i have learned the most from have been uh women queer women and poc and indigenous women um mm. been very lucky to have been taught by those people um and to have the the blessing of picking my own classes and avoiding white dudes. So, yeah. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, I've also been very lucky to work with some strong femmes in the BDSM and kink communities. So a lot of the um, event organization that I do is free and volunteer and just by socialization, if nothing else, it seems like the kinds of people who tend to organize parties tend to be femmes, whether they're women, trans women, not that you need to make a distinction between those two groups, um, or any other um, branch of people who are, you know, effeminate, but don't identify necessarily as a woman. Mm -hmm. It seems like all the organization is done by femmes. And, and some degree of that, I think, is probably socialization of taking care of other people and the importance of that. Mm -hmm. So as a consequence of that, of being one of the few masculine presenting people, there are two more um, that I can think of. Um, that that's three more, four more that are doing this. See, as soon as I start thinking about it, I'll think of more. But for every for every mask person I can think of that does organizing, there is four femmes that do organizing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, one of the amazing advantages of being in my situation is I get to work with all these really strong, intelligent, and highly competent, high performing women that just are like really amazing, like driven and just like get a whole bunch of shit done. Um, I, perfect example um 
I don't know how much I should say about it, but I'm currently being personally sued by Lord Braven in um, the same lawsuit that Metro Vancouver Kink is being sued by Lord Braven. Um, Yeah, I don't know how much you know about me being personally sued, along with everyone else on the board of Metro Vancouver Kink being personally sued. Oh, that sucks. What? Yeah, it's funny how if you volunteer with an organization and make absolutely no money and then release a document like the Metro Vancouver Kink open letter, um, that someone, um, specifically Lord Braven claims to be defamatory. Oh, I think I read, um, I think it was on my Twitter. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah. The court case itself has garnered national attention now, um, which is pretty nuts. Have you had to go? Um, I have, so other people have been, is it deposed? Is that, is that the, so depos- you do a deposition Yeah, or subpoenaed, but, um, I haven't been subpoenaed yet. It's going to be in BC Provincial Supreme Court, and uh, I will almost certainly be in a courtroom at some point again. We are also currently engaged in slap court in BC, and we are the third case in BC to use the new slap court. So currently, to my knowledge, no decisions have been rendered on any of the cases, so it's going to take a while. Mm -hmm. They're currently deciding on burdens of proof and standards of evidence and like really systemic stuff that goes beyond the scope of just this court case. So they may have to hear back from the BC Supreme Court and judges may have to confer about this because they're essentially building a new court right now. Oh, they're, yeah. And they will be setting precedents as well. So. Right. Yeah. And so as they do that, it's going to take time. So we probably won't hear back for, oh geez, I don't even know. Um, like six months probably, but we went and had our slap application heard and now people need to figure their shit out and then eventually we'll hear back. And that may or may not, um, that may or may not bump, bump us out of the, um, BC Supreme court circuit. But if it doesn't, then we will be continuing with, um, being sued there for damages to Lord Braven's reputation. That is exhausting. Yeah. I mean, as with any lawsuit, um, just as prisons are an institution of violence, courts can be as well. I'm very fortunate in that I don't have any personal allegations um, against anyone um, who is suing me. So for my own part, I won't allege any specific harm like that or any violence like that, because there's nothing worse than making an allegation that someone sexually assaulted you and then being sued for making that allegation, which is a thing that happens in Canada. Absolutely. And you can, by virtue of simply having more money than someone, make them wrong in court. If they can't respond to a claim or they don't have the education or resources, you can essentially get decisions rendered against them in really horrific ways that are very classist and very um monetary yeah so yeah i'm trying to do my best to not be completely silent but also not step in anything as i talk about being sued so (laughs) it's it's hopefully it's tricky sorry go ahead yeah it it is it is super tricky um yeah Yeah. So all of that aside, I wanted to get um, talking on sort of one last area before we before we close up the podcast. So we've talked a lot about differences um, or at least a little bit about differences in incarcerated people in Canada, um, differences in that 
incarcerated indigenous folks are hugely overrepresented in a way that seems impossible not to be representative of systemic racism. It's like 40%. Yeah, it's it's a absolutely ludicrous number. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it's so institutionalized and so systemic in the way Canada runs and is very much um it is very much a consequence of colonialism and in my opinion, and and we could talk about that for a long time. But what I wanted to touch on specifically was youth incarceration mm-hmm. and youth programs, because I think people listening will have a much easier time understanding. Um, even if they may not believe that, you know, adults really probably should have much, much more access to rehabilitation and growth focused consequences rather than punitive consequences that only serve to hurt people and that don't fundamentally protect us any more than non-punitive consequences. Could you quickly frame what prisons are like and why you believe them to be violent and dehumanizing. Oh, where do I start? Um... <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. Because um... we could just detain people, but we don't no. just detain people. No, we torture them. Um, so I would start with um, they, they strip away any sense of identity um, you're given a, a uniform and a number, um, which I think is the most disgusting right. practice. Um, mm-hmm. you should, people should be called by their names. They shouldn't be called by numbers. Um, and then we yeah. put them in a, in a tiny cell, um, to quote unquote, think about what they've done. Right. Um, and to me that all that breeds is anger, frustration, and violence. And I could get into sexual assaults in prison, physical assaults in prison, physical right. by guards on prisoners in prison, um, solitary confinement, which I think is, um, we should absolutely abolish it. Um, it is incredibly violent. It is incredibly psychologically and physically damaging to the people who experience it. Um, mm-hmm. People, um, there's, people have gone blind from solitary confinement. Um, because you're really, yeah, your eyes can't, um, they need to be able to, uh, the muscles need to, it's something about depth, um, and depth. Right. So if you're only looking at a wall, like a blank wall for, for say 12 years, um, you're not, your eyes are not going to be able to focus much farther than that. Ooh, that is a terrifying amount of time to have nothing but my own internal monologue. Yeah. A windowless, soundless room. Um, and then if you, a lot of people break mentally and emotionally, um, and they try to right. themselves. And then what happens is, um, guards come in sometimes in full riot gear. Um, and I've, I've read, uh, accounts of prisoners being beaten to the point where they thought that they were going to die. Um, wow. yeah, for, for being violent, stepping out of line. What else are you supposed to do when somebody locks you in a box 23 hours a day um, right. with, with no way to communicate? Like you can't have anything in there. Right. Um, so, and then, and then, you know, mandatory minimums, which I think are disgusting. Right. It's fundamentally the legislative arm of the government overstepping, in my opinion. You're basically saying a judge doesn't have the right to do their own job. Exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, and some of them, I don't think some of them should be on the bench, but that's a personal opinion. Uh, sure. So, yeah, I just, they're not good. <laughs> they're not good. They're bad. I, bad. I don't. Prison, prison bad. Yeah, bad. Um, there are spaces. Do you identify, sorry, go ahead. Do I, I identify as an abolitionist. Just, that was my question. Uh, I was going to say, do you identify as an abolitionist? I have went to a school for four years where I was taught by abolitionists and feminists. Um, and now I'm at a school where we, I am taught by abolitionists and feminists. Um, so yeah, that is right. my school of thought. Um, yeah. We can, we can touch on that um, in the next episode we record. Um, but I'm super interested to continue this this channel of conversation as you're talking about um the violence of prisons um feel free to make any like closing thoughts on how violent dehumanizing prisons are um but then i would love to talk about like even if we went neutral as a society and people weren't willing to be abolitionists and say, let's get rid of prisons because they maybe don't have a good sense of education of what programming could look like. What would a neutral detention look like? What are some basic human rights that you would want to see for incarcerated people in Canada? Um, I think that's really where we can learn from indigenous communities and look mm. at the lodges. Um, I did a class as a summer summer course for eight weeks in an Indigenous Healing Lodge, um, where I was with the guys for I mean, the guys sixteen hours a week, um, roughly. They wow. they got to wear their own clothes. They were called by their own names. There were no fences. They could wander around the property wherever they wanted. All they had to do was come back for count at eight noon and four and probably closer to bedtime um, right. i think it was 10. um but they cooked their own food um god what else they participated in their own healing rituals um they got mm -hmm. with elders they had good like really great relationships with the staff it was a mutual that's event. awesome so i think that that's what we can look at like how do we instead of stripping every way, everything away from a person and then having them do five or 10 years and then kicking out, kicking them out the door and effectively saying, good luck fucker and sending them right. out the world. And then they just reoffend and they come back and you're like, well, why'd you do that again? Well, you didn't give them any resources. You gave them nothing mm -hmm. when they went out into the world. Um, instead we can, we can rehabilitate people and build them up and, you know, essentially build build their spirit up um, so that they can be released and they can be really strong community members who actively contribute and who want to make change. So awesome. I think that that's what I think that that's what it should look like. Awesome. Yeah, that is that is more progressive than the neutral because I was going to go from like, what would it look like neutrally if we just detained people and like humanized them and just they did their time, you know, you, um, and uh, you took it right to this more progressive, like, here's how we could rehabilitate people yeah. and not be terrible to them. You could also, you could look at the Norwegian model, um, which uh, I think it's just a, their their prisons are just a big dormitory. Um, hmm. 
and they yeah they're like they're like dorm rooms um and they do programming and they do things like uh cooking and cleaning um there's like a music program that they can do like an audio mixing program so they can learn really valuable skills so i think for for that mm -hmm. it's you you can look at models like that and i think that should become the neutral you know mm. like yeah i just i i just don't see I don't see a, a justice system where we aren't actively contributing to healing, um, whether it be the system or the community. I just don't. I, I, I just don't see how it could work otherwise, because it's like yeah, yeah. If you if you think about it, um, and when people are like, oh, we shouldn't have these spaces. Like people should do their time, and it's mostly mm -hmm. old people. <laughs> have that fight yeah that that's fair yeah um but i always say like what would you want would you want somebody who has been beaten down um who is angry and who wants effectively like wants kind of vengeance on society would you want to release them into the world or would you want to release somebody who is happy who is healthy who has been taken care of and who has been held accountable for their actions i want the second right yeah, if I'm going to have a convict slash former convict, um, I don't know which of those is appropriate to use, I guess. Um, yeah, if I'm going to have someone living in my backyard, as it were, I would prefer that they've been rehabilitated. Because if I want to feel like they're going to uphold, you know, quote unquote, the social contract and treat me and my family well, mm -hmm. I want to know that, like, the last interactions they had with society was society treating them well even if society said we don't trust you to be out amongst us because we are afraid of you but here are some resources yeah. i would much rather that sort of a model be used um, rather than society being like well you did the bad thing we're going to punish you for 20 years and cool now go and live right next door to victor and process your feelings there with someone else because we're not going to help you with that yeah the, the the nimby thing not in my backyard is the worst it's the worst right. mindset you can possibly have as a community member. Um, right. Because you're not helping anybody. You're not helping right. anybody with that mindset. Um, it's it's basically like the well-meaning liberal sort of approach of like, oh, yeah, I agree with all of these programs, except I don't actually want to think about them or have to deal with any of the consequences. Yeah. And I'm always reminded of when, um, uh, when they wanted to open Insight for the first time. Mm -hmm. And people lost it right people who didn't even live in the community were like right we can't have this here we don't even live here karen like come on <laughs> oh i fucking love that you use karen as a name but uh she but yes no you're completely right they're having the same the same shit fit in seattle right now over the safe injection site they're trying to get running there i think ottawa's trying to open one too um, well, I mean, Insight showed that if you do allow safe injection sites, you'll see a reduction in mortality. You'll save a shit ton of lives. Yep. You'll save a shit ton of money running it because one person or, or a couple of people can staff it yep. and literally do all of the life-saving without having to add the extra strain on your paramedical system. Yep. You don't have to bring people that are having overdoses to you or send paramedics to them. They literally come to your paramedics, hang out there, do their drugs and leave, which they would do anyways somewhere on the street that would either, either you know, impact, um, it, would, it would impact tourism, it would impact 
um, the feelings of safety that people may have if they see someone who's currently using in an alley they may be like oh do i need to go and check on that person now and it's like no all of these things are being taken care of you taken care of for you by society in this one program that's extremely inexpensive that reduces death uh, fundamentally reduces drug use because you've got users that are at their highest that they're going to be with the most resources to try and leave that um, situation Literally. immediately right. having access to resources right there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a detox center right upstairs if they want it. And it, like, that's the best, best case scenario. And you're giving them the option. Um, right. I think giving, giving the user the power, I think that's the key. Um, because you can't, you can't force anybody into treatment. No, I think the very nature of treatment from addiction would be empowerment to make choice. Yeah. I mean, like I, I'm the child of, I'm the child of two, two former addicts. I mean, I know that you can't force, well, three actually, um, I know you can't force anybody to treatment. It doesn't work. Um, people have to go in there. Mm -hmm. So. And again, this is going to be an area you have far more expertise in than I do. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that. I'm not trying to uh, <laughs> explain these things to you. I just feel very passionately about the benefits of insight. Yep. And I'm so frustrated by conversations I've had with people who I often very quickly shut down over like, why? Why do you want it gone? Yeah. Why do you want it gone? Do you want to spend more money? Do you want to spend more money on more people dying? Yeah. Or is it just that you want more drug users on the streets and you want more crime in your city? Like, why do you want it gone? And I just, Especially like, it's an irrational fear. Yeah. Especially right now. Why would you want it gone in the middle of a of the fentanyl crisis? Absolutely. Okay. This is like, they literally just want drug users to die is the only thing I can think of. Yeah. And I just, I can't think of anything more worth fighting against than people who are advocating that we should not intervene and just let people die. I'm like, this is so cheap for us to do. It's so easy for us to do. We have the training. We're not harming anyone. We are actively holding on. And some percentage of the people we hold on to do get clean. Some percentage of the people we hold on to, you, you know, they, they make the choice and they use the detox facilities. It's just like any other kind of healthcare in my mind. And I just, I can't get behind that super punitive idea of we should just let people die or we should just let people kill themselves if you want to use really shitty language like that. Because ultimately, if a person doesn't know fentanyl is in what they're taking and they take it and they overdose, that's not the same thing as if they overdose because they're, you know, deliberately taking a dose that they know will kill them. Those are two different situations. They're, ex yeah, they're extremely different. Um, I do, there's a really great podcast, um, uh, called the crackdown. Um, that's a great name. Fantastic. I can't remember his name. Uh, I have him on Twitter. Let me just Google him. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a Vancouver based podcast. Um, and it's run by people who use drugs. Um, so it's about awesome. drugs, drug policy and the war on drugs. Um, mm. Garth Mullins is his name. He's the executive producer. Um, and he is a methadone user now, but he was a heroin user for many, many years. Um, wow. That's, that's pretty intense. Yeah. And he talks about the, um, he talks about how drug policy is affecting and, and effectively killing people he knows. 
and people mm. love. Um, and it's really personal. Um, it's very emotional. I would just prepare yourself. Um, but it's, it's a great podcast and it's a great insight into this crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've pretty much tackled all the different kinds of programming from insight, which isn't arts based at all, but is still very, very useful um, all the way through various other types of programming. We didn't really touch on youth incarceration like I wanted to, but that's okay. Cause we can talk about that in the next episode we record together. Yana, thank you so much for podcasting with me again. It's been great. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Is it okay if I ask you, have you ever wanted to offend? Is that like something you can answer? Sure. <laughs> I love how you're like all the time. I'm on the fence right now. I mean, I've like been gay do crimes, right? Like that's, that's the thing. Be gay do crimes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's what Twitter says. And then I, I always look <laughs> Twitter. Always, always listen to Twitter, yeah. but uh, wash your legs. Yeah. After, oh, yeah. Please, for the love of God, <laughs> was right there. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. Oh, my God. And when somebody's uh... like, I don't wash my body, the water does it for me. I'm like, Karen, use soap, please. <laughs> Karen is the best name, too. I know. I feel so bad for, like, the two people I know who are named Karen. And are like, what? And I'm like, well, not you specifically, but, like, the collective Karen. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.